Welcome to this week's episode of The Versatile Writer, the podcast that aims to help and support like-minded writers. As I mentioned in the first part a few episodes ago, I've been writing for over three decades, so in that time I've picked up and created a fair amount of tips. The tips I've included today, they're in no way intended for me to tell you what to do. I'd never do that. We're all different. Take from it what you will. There might be one or two that work for you. If there isn't, just discard them and move on. So the idea is, you choose what works for you. And if you think there's something I didn't cover, why not mention it in the Facebook group? The link will be in the show notes. Before I get started, I'm sitting next to a lovely open window with birds at a feeder. And you might hear some of them pecking at the food. So along with my feathered friends, let's get started. Here's a reminder of the first ten I covered a few episodes ago. Writing tip number one, considering criticism. Number two, preventing story dump. Number three, beta readers. Four, something's missing, but what? Five, providing a remedy for overcooking the story. Number six, free writing. Number seven, using your subconscious as a writing tool and dreams as ideas. Number eight, write on demand. Number nine, using unusual things as writing resources. And writing tip number ten was revert to pen and pad. So let's get straight on with it. Writing tip number eleven. Number eleven is social media, using it and avoiding it. The past decade has seen the use of social media rise exponentially. Who could have predicted how fast it would grow and what a large part of society it would become? People now have careers where they influence others and blogging is also a career choice where two decades ago it was hardly even known about. But love it or hate it, social media is probably here to stay. Whatever your choice of platform, most people choose no more than four maybe. For instance, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. There are many more too and probably some I've never even heard of. But the tip is entitled using it and avoiding it, not which one's best, because each of them might be better for different things, whatever it is that you're going to be talking about. Most writers use social media for two main reasons. One, to focus on promoting their book and their writing. And two, to be social. After all, it is social media. Even in this world where so much of our lives relates to social media, There are still a few writers I know who don't even touch it. I recently heard a writing group leader say they were trying to get some more members but wouldn't be touching social media with a barge pole. The thing is, most of your audience is likely to be looking for you on social media, so not being on it will be hindering your efforts to get new members. Also, social media is likely to be the first place people look in order to find out who you are or what you think or what you're promoting. If you're not on one of the platforms, are you even real? I mean, you can't focus all your efforts on promoting your books or your writing just on your website. And social media is a great place to post back to your website. The best thing about social media is that it's free. The worst thing about social media is that it's so full of information that you might not know where to look for the information you went there to look for. So let's start with the using it part of this tip. Most authors who've got a book to promote have an author Facebook page. 
I'd advise you to have a separate author page to the real you page, the one where your cousins post pictures of their babies, that kind of thing. Your author Facebook page ought to have just professional posts on it. Generally, I feel that keeping the writing you separate from the real you is best. You can always share your author page posts with your real page so you can reach more people. But I'd advise not sharing your personal pages with your professional ones. It's really a one-way street. Next, you might have a Twitter page. Mine is a mixture of professional and personal because on Twitter there's a different vibe than on Facebook. On Twitter, there are hashtags that filter down the things you're looking for. For instance, hashtag writing community is one I use a lot. This makes sure that the post containing the hashtag is seen by people within the writing community. So if my post is related to writing in some way, which it usually is, it makes sense for that community to see it and, hopefully, respond to it. Instagram is my third platform of choice. Like Twitter, I use it for both personal and professional. Keeping it mostly for pictures that pertain to writing, creativity, colour, nature, mental health, all the things that excite me. Instagram is the one I've been on for the least amount of time. For me, it's been about two or three years where Facebook has been maybe a decade and Twitter has been around 11 years or more. I use all three platforms to promote my books, my business, my podcast, my blogs, my newsletters and just about everything that tells the world who I am, what I'm about and where new clients can find me because that's the main thing as I run a business. That's me though. I started to use LinkedIn again. A while back I didn't find it particularly friendly and I pulled out. That was about nine years ago. I've recently been reading articles about how it's improved and how much more friendly it is. Ways to avoid falling down the rabbit holes is by switching off. Switching off your phone or muting it, ensuring updates are disabled and forcing yourself to focus on whatever you're meant to be doing instead. It is pretty much that simple, but most of us don't have that kind of willpower, certainly not every day. Which is why there's software that will silence your social media if you just can't stop looking at it. Lastly, LinkedIn is not set up in the way of the other platforms. LinkedIn is mostly for businesses to network with each other. That said, with the popularity of social media platforms popping up all over the place, I suspect LinkedIn has had to bend that ideal ever so slightly because I do notice a lot of people posting non-work-relating content onto it. I was first on LinkedIn back when I began my business a decade ago. I did notice after a couple of years though, it didn't feel like a particularly friendly place to be. I felt like it wasn't the place to post about a creative business. It wasn't very welcoming. The long and short of it was that I felt I was in the wrong place. So I left. I thought, though, never to return. But over the past couple of years, I've noticed other platforms mentioning that LinkedIn is different nowadays. I've followed several posters on other platforms and I've read articles on how it's changed. It wasn't that it had softened exactly, but so many creative businesses are on there now and people seem more open to creativity as a business. So those are my social media tips. Writing tip number 12. Sequels, should I or not? Oh, this is a tough one. Actually, it might be quite an easy one. Or is it? I've actually considered a whole episode on this very topic coming in the next season. 
At its nuts and bolts, a sequel is entirely down to you to decide, but in case you're still having a few decisions to make, here's what I think. Sequels are generally only really needed if A. The story isn't finished, but the book is already big. B. The story is finished, but foreshadowing of another adventure has been mentioned. C. If the story is intended to be part of a serial. Now, each of these have merit, and actually there are other reasons too, but these are the main ones I can think of right now. You've seen those books, often trilogies, where a group of characters go on a quest, and the first book is already 400 pages by itself. Those are the ones that are clearly going to be part of a series. Then there's the ones where the book is pretty large, but there's no end in sight, yet everything mentioned in the book is relevant. It seems to be calling out for a sequel, at least to tie up the loose ends. Lastly, and this is the one that my characters often fall in, the story is finished, but the background information is foretelling another story that would be better suited in a sequel. Occasionally, that information might even lend itself to a prequel. There seems to be more and more of these over the last few years, especially in the movie world. With my stories, I find myself in a slightly different fourth category, one that is mildly self-indulgent, yet it's also justified. I feel I've got so used to being with the characters that leaving them when the story is over just feels like bereavement. I quite literally feel like there's been a death in the family. It's a really horrible feeling and one that takes me weeks or longer to get over. So over the years I've discovered two ways of getting through it. First, I can plunge myself into another new story. Or second, I can write a sequel or a prequel. So this tip is more of a multiple choice one. But you decide what works best for you, your story and your characters. Writing tip number 13. Marketing your book. This is generally for those who have had a book finished. Although if you don't, there's nothing stopping you from making a note of these tips and using them when you're ready to begin marketing. Marketing and sales go hand in hand, but if you want to focus just on the marketing part of your newest book in order to garner those much needed sales, why not go back to tip number 11 and consider how to use social media effectively? Marketing is all about telling people what to expect so if your book is coming out in a month's time or six months' time, you should definitely be getting them excited about it. The sooner the better. Marketing actually begins before you even write the book. It starts when you know who your audience is. Once you know who you're writing for, that's when it truly begins because at that point you'll know who you're telling. And this is when social media can work really well. Dropping tasty hints into your social media feed tells your current audience what's coming up, however far away that coming up might be. If you use a few well thought out hashtags on, say, Twitter and gain a few influential followers, they may well retweet or share your posts, adding more followers, preparing them for when you actually do release the new book. You could also write some punchy, interesting blogs on your site about the next book and link that to your social media posts. In addition, gather some book bloggers who are happy to assist in a book tour, which can also be linked back to your social media and your site. And before too long, you'll have people waiting for the next book to arrive before it's even been published. And that's a brilliant position to be in. But it's not only ever just about using digital marketing to put the word out. Telling people about it is also great. 
the first thing that pops into my head is when I'm in a cafe and you get talking to the person at the table next to you. Now, usually I'm sitting there with a laptop, so that's kind of a reason for people to look over and start talking to me about what I'm doing and what I'm up to. And nowadays, when people work from home or work from cafes, it's not unusual to see a laptop or somebody writing in a notebook. But even so, some people are still quite intent on chatting with you. So telling them about your upcoming book is still marketing. Talking to your local librarian when you check out a book is marketing. They may even want to be part of it. Talking to your local independent bookshop owner is marketing. And, like the librarian, they may want to stock it when it's released. In a nutshell, that's how marketing works. Create a buzz and get people interested. Writing tip number 14. Changing genres. Many writers will stick with the genre they know because what you know means you can write with confidence, especially if you have an existing audience. But some writers want to vary from their main genre because they want the challenge of trying something new or because they feel they've exhausted all directions of their current one. Others do it because they haven't yet found their favourite one. I tend to try different genres when a new idea hits me, and this is why I write in all kinds of genres. However, saying that, I've noticed that over the past few years, that while my stories change drastically, they all have a similar thread running through them. Romance, or at least relationships. I really enjoy building and developing characters and watching how they engage with their co-characters. I might write romantic suspense because I want a bit of crime in the story, a mystery with some love in it, supernatural, gay fiction, even a bit of paranormal romance. If you're a children's author and you fancy a bit of gothic fiction for adult readers, why not? The bottom line is, unless you're contracted to write a specific genre, write what excites you, not what's expected of you. Who's to say you haven't got talent in several genres and you won't know until you give it a go? And if you ended up being awful, you don't have to show it to anyone else, which will give you a chance to improve. Publishing in different genres is completely different and I might even cover that at another time. Writing tip number 15. Publishing. Is it for you? So many people talk about publishing as the obvious organic next step after writing a book. And to many writers it is. But some publishing isn't needed or even necessary. Some writers write for themselves and produce content not intended for the eyes of others. Content might be in the form of private journals and diaries or even novels. Some artists paint for themselves and people who enjoy music might sing for themselves. But if you want to write and are quite happy to do so for yourself, then keep it that way. There's nothing to say you have to do it for an audience. So please never feel pressured to do so. Writing tip number 16. Writing groups, writing courses, writing retreats. Let's start with this one by defining them as best I can. Writing groups are generally attended regularly, maybe weekly or monthly. Often they're led by one writer who might guide the attendees in a particular direction. Groups I've led in the past have been for members to have a common goal, to encourage and support each other with their writing. But other groups might have a different ethos, maybe to use the session as a classroom lesson or something similar. Writing courses are generally about providing information to attendees, and often in a teacher-student format, not necessarily as a classroom setting. 
Courses are often aimed at several people at once and this is twofold because it's cost effective for the tutor to do so and because a group of people lends itself to potential discussions and the sharing of opinions which is often really helpful. Writing courses are often structured quite rigidly if there are many people attending so it's worth keeping that in mind if you're attending one. That said, while I offer courses like that, I also provide ones for the individual that allows the attendee the space to think and feel. They are creative writing courses after all. I currently offer six courses, all designed for groups or the individual. Do check out my site if any of this interests you. Loveofbooks.co.uk Writing retreats are a different beast altogether. I've only attended one or two in my time, but both have been hugely beneficial. The most recent is Swanwick Writers' Retreat, which is held annually in Derbyshire in the UK. It lasts for a week and offers several workshops throughout. Food and board is covered within the cost. All things considered is extremely good value for money. It was on my bucket list, so I went in 2019, ticking it off my list, but many writers attend every year. Of course, if courses, groups or retreats are on your list of writing-related things to try, why not give them a go? You don't need to do them forever in a day, but by attending them, maybe one or two, it might freshen your mind and your writing. Writing tip number 17. Resilience. Before I continue with this one, I went back again to listen to writing tips part one and noticed something I'd said about criticism and I ought to make an addendum. The thing is, I've covered a lot about the feelings you might get when others offer feedback, whether it's been invited or not. And the problem is, I didn't really cover the one thing everyone in life ought to take on board. Resilience. I said, as writers, we're told quite early on to grow a thick skin because reviews can be quite scathing. It's always made me curious to know why critics feel the need to be so scathing within creative writing and other artistic endeavours. I mean, why choose scathing words at all? Why not be constructive in your delivery rather than tear someone down? But then I'm of the school of thought that suggests we ought to consider how our words can affect the originator. That the delivery of your words can mean the difference between confidence in a new writer and none at all. That they never take to writing again. And what's the use in that? What does anybody learn from it? So, some people are quite harsh in their opinion, their criticism or review of art. You only have to watch any episode of a cooking show or dance programme or singing contest that has a panel of judges to see that. However, in the world of writing, if you've asked someone their thoughts on your manuscript, there must be a reason why you've asked that person. It might be that you hold them in high regard because of their work or because of the opinions they give others. Maybe you just get on well with them and feel their writing standard is similar to your own, so they may enjoy your work. So what I'm really talking about is resilience. The ability to pop back up after you've been knocked down. If you ask someone's opinion, you must be sure you want it. I can talk all day about not taking their words on board, but I've noticed I don't talk much about taking their feedback. This isn't because I always feel I know best about work. It's not that at all. It's more about protecting myself and you from receiving hurtful words. I've been there in the past so many times, but resilience is really not something I've ever learned. I had to learn it the hard way. But not every piece of feedback is going to be tough to take. 
What if it's brilliant? What if it's just what your manuscript needs? What if it's actually the best thing it could have got? Then excellent. How you take the feedback is entirely on you. Whether it hurts or it helps your manuscript, I'd advise being professional about it. If you found someone who loves what you do, maybe ask them to be in a permanent pool of beta readers since they already like what you write. Let's turn things on their head. What happens if you're the one to give the opinion on their work? What if the work is really awful and you're trying to find the right words to say that without saying that? Toughening up applies to both parties. Toughening up on how you give criticism and toughening up on how you receive it. If you're giving it, sometimes doing it is best in person. The receiver sees your body language, your facial expressions and hears your voice so that all of that goes into the big mix of delivery. If you can't do it in person and relying on the written word, please use your words carefully. I've got an earlier episode of The Versatile Writer that covers the tricky topic of feedback delivery. I believe it's under the title of self-doubt, but do look it up because it might help. One more thing to add here. When receiving or giving the opinion, please don't start a vendetta. (laughs) Seeing how you deliver the feedback may show someone else how to do it in the future. Writing tip number 18, writing prompts. Useful or not? As an avid user of writing prompts, I'm going to say a big fat yes to this and a massive thumbs up. Not everyone responds to writing on demand. Prompts might be a sound, an image, a feeling, a smell or a taste. Prompts generally do rely on the senses because they're an excellent way to get your mind working quickly by recalling memories or imagining what it could be. One of my books is a collection of writing prompts. It's called Writing Naked, Writing Without Boundaries and it was designed to encourage new and experienced writers to use visual and text prompts to write whatever you wanted to and ignore industry standard boundaries, genres and pigeonholes. You can find the digital version on Amazon or get a physical copy from me. If you'd like to, email sarah at loveofbooks.co.uk and I'll organise it wherever you are in the world. Writing tip number 19. Writing coaches. This is one of my services through For the Love of Books. However, while I promote myself as a writing coach, they're not for everyone. I'll give a shout out to mine in a moment, but first of all, let's see what a writing coach can do for you. As with all kinds of coaches, a writing coach is there to help you write or finish writing your book. They may help you dig deeper into your character's psyche development, or they might G you along with a motivational talk. Being held accountable to your writing is useful if you're writing to a deadline. It's also handy if you find procrastination is creeping in and preventing you from writing. Procrastination is another title from the versatile writer, so do look it up as it really goes into detail about what might be causing your specific kind of procrastination. And please don't procrastinate, do just look it up. So, accountability. Then there's guidance. Creative writing is fun, but it can also be really challenging. If the challenging part is becoming a problem that you can't see out of, having a coach on board might help you untangle it. Guiding you to the end of your work is one thing, but guiding you away from bad habits that are stopping your writing is helpful too. Then there's support. As a writing coach, support is quite a large part of the service. Feeling as if you're being handheld, or just knowing someone else is there to catch you if you falter, will ensure you get to that finish line. 
encouragement is the final quarter of the largest elements that make up the role of writing coach. Hearing those words or actions of encouragement to get you over the finish line can make all the difference. Knowing the journey you've been on to get that far means seeing your work finished makes the whole experience that much sweeter. So let me tell you about what I do. As a personal writing coach, I'll discuss with you your goals, expectations, your hopes, and work closely with them to achieve it. Because writing can be an extremely personal activity, trust is important in achieving the goal. I also run a coaching group whereby several writers submit so many words each month for me to respond with where they might be guided, what works brilliantly, what might need attention, and where it fits overall in their final piece. So context is important here too. At the end of the month, we get together for a Zoom chat and discuss it. What questions one might raise could answer the question for, for another. All that's required from the writer is an openness to take on board feedback, a willingness to apply the feedback, and the inclination to do all of it in the first place. Some people like to be handheld, some prefer to have a joke along the way, and others prefer a serious approach. It all depends on the writer. One thing I will always do, however, is deliver my feedback and suggestions with respect and sensitivity. Sure, some writers are as hard as nails and can take a tougher approach, but as I've said countless times, I've been the less confident, sensitive writer in the past who would have flourished a lot sooner if I'd been coaxed rather than insulted. So this is why I work the way I do. Making a writer rather than breaking a writer is my aim. If this sounds like it could work for you, check out my website, loveofbooks.co.uk. I did start off this tip saying they're not for everyone, and I do believe that. If you don't need the encouragement, support, guidance or accountability, and you're as motivated to write as you're ever going to be, then it sounds like you're doing everything you need to do. Good luck with your writing, and I wish you a lifetime of happiness with it. Now we come to the last tip, but like I did in writing tip part one, part two is the same. Writing tip number 11, social media. 12. Sequels. 13. Marketing. 14. Changing genres. 15. Publishing. 16. Writing groups, courses and retreats. 17. Resilience. 18. Writing prompts. 19. Writing coaches. And writing tip number 20. Despite everything, you do you. There's really not much more to say about this except that experienced writers can give you all the advice in the world. But when it comes down to it, you write however you want to write. I wish you many happy and productive years of doing it. Doing it, learning from it and failing with it and being successful with it is how you gain experience. So if you love what you're doing, keep on doing it. If you can think of any other writing tips, why not let me know via the Facebook group. The link will be in the show notes. Or just go on Facebook and search for The Versatile Writer. If you get the urge, I'd appreciate you subscribing to this podcast and sharing it on social media so others in your circle can hear it as well. If you do, please tag me in. On Facebook, I'm Sarah Bannum. That's S-A-R-A-H-B-A-N-H-A-M. On Instagram, I'm S.J.Bannum, no spaces. On Twitter, I'm at SJB Writes. And on LinkedIn, I'm Sarah Bannum, BA Honours. Thank you for listening to The Versatile Writer this week on the topic of writing tips part two. Take care, see you next time.